the first time I went to Nok Wat Nongbapong, Ajin Charles Monastery. I walked there. I was a layman and went with a monk from Wat Panana Chap to go and visit Ajahn Chah and also do some business. It's quite a few kilometers to walk, a few hours. We went in the middle of the day, so it's hot. When we approached Watmapong, the wall of the monastery, come into the coolness of the forest and you immediately notice both the coolness of the shade of the trees but also the peaceful atmosphere at the time there might have been 60 or 70 monks living there and a similar number of nuns you hardly see anyone you come in the middle of the day, you may just see somebody way off in the distance walking from one place to another. Even though there's a large number of people there, very quiet, peaceful atmosphere. At the front of the monastery, they also had a big sign which says Dan Kaurop, which means a place of respect. Setting and then setting out the basic rules of the monastery, partly to help define the monastery as a place of respect for. Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the Dhamma Vinaya, is a place of practice, partly for newcomers or the villagers who lived around there, <coughs> who often would see the forest as a place of collecting food, hunting animals, collecting cutting down trees for timber, for construction and so on. So it's to remind them, partly for the inhabitants of the monastery, to remind them, to bring up mindfulness, just to set the perception of the monastery as a place of respect, respect of the Dhamma Vinaya, place of practice. Respect and practice going hand in hand. When we walked into the monastery on that first day, first occasion, still kept up the old, very old tradition from the Vinaya, taking sandals off at the edge of the monastery and carrying them in rather than walking in with sandals on the feet 
again, just to remind oneself that this is a place of respect. You're lowering your outer display of self, taking off your shoes, you're humbling yourself. If you were carrying an umbrella or a grot, then you had to take your umbrella down. Sometimes monks would use them to shade themselves from the hot sun. You take it down when you enter the monastery. Traditionally, you're supposed to leave weapons outside the monastery as well. Hunters or soldiers. So Buddhism is a teaching of non-violence, non-aggression. And the Buddha said, taught that one who follows the Buddha has to put their weapon down. Often in the old days, people would carry weapons for hunting, for protection. The monastery is a place you put your weapons down before entering. Mentally, if you take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, you put your weapons down, you give up the thought to harm others, the intention. We walked into the monastery that day and not many people around, very quiet. It takes a long time to find people, to find monks, if you have business. A lot of patient waiting sitting on hard floors, waiting for somebody to come. Wherever you go in the monastery, you always bow. Again, Ajahn Chah emphasized bowing as a sign of respect, mindfulness, reminding you where you are and recollecting Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So you go to the main hall, you bow, Go to a kuti, you bow. You bow, recollecting the Buddha, recollecting the Dhamma, the truth, the teachings of the Buddha, teachings on karma. You physically incline your body to the ground, respecting or revering karma. Karma is true. You do good, brings good results. It's cultivating the path towards the end of suffering. You do evil, it brings you more suffering. You bow to the Sangha, the qualities of the Sangha, the area Sangha and literally to any Sangha member you meet, if they're more senior, you bow. Or at the very least, you put your hands up in Anjali, if you're just passing, maybe. If you're a, a layman or an Anagarika, it's easy. You basically bow to everyone, because you're so junior. If you're more senior, you might have to ask somebody how many reigns they've been ordained, even what date.
what day of the month, what year. And Jen Chao emphasized this as a way of living together that makes for very simple, harmonious living because you always know your place. It's not that there's any person or group of people using it as say, a, some kind of wicked method of control or bullying. This is a very practical way for large numbers of people in the Sangha to relate to each other. You always know who ordained before you, who ordained after you. It helps to resolve many practical issues like where you take your food in the line, where you sit, who you listen to, who you instruct. Obviously, he encouraged us to practice the Brahma Viharas towards all members of the community, junior and senior. The Vinaya does that. We have ways of looking after each other. Every member of the community is valid and important, valued and important. But in practical terms, one shows respect based on seniority of ordination. And that day I went, we went from the hall to find one senior monk, and then we went to Ajahn Chah's kuti. So each place you bow, meet a senior monk, you bow. Always used to let the senior monk speak first. Maybe they're just saying, what's, what's your business? Maybe not. Some senior monks are very quiet, so you just patiently wait for them to speak first. Even this simple practice brings up mindfulness. You learn not to just blurt out what's in your mind all the time. So you physically express the Dhamma Vinaya, say by bowing, by sitting, by waiting. Verbally express it. You wait, listen to the senior monk. You have a question, you have some business and you speak, you listen. There's a lot of skillful communication going on. Obviously mentally, you're observing your mind all the time, especially if you have long periods where you're waiting, waiting for Lumpur Liam or waiting for another senior monk or waiting for Ajahn Chah to come out of his room at a certain time. As you wait, you watch your mind. So on every level you're practicing. And for many of us that's how the monastic training and the practice begins. Not necessarily knowing everything, even if we've read a lot, remembered a lot, but we're learning from day-to-day -day experience and cultivating the attitude of one who is learning. 
and some of those basic rules like putting your shoes, taking your shoes off, taking your umbrella down at the beginning of the monastery. Again, it's a simple reminder that you're here to learn. So it's a humbling thing, setting aside one's sense of personal status, one's knowledge, who one is, sense of being a somebody. One comes into the monastery, one just blends in with everybody else. And Wobbapong very much upheld that sort of flavor of the Dhamma Vinaya right back to the time of the Buddha. The Buddha, revolutionary for his day for setting aside differences of caste, race, once people join the Sangha, shave the head, then all of that's put to one side. Ego, one sense of status based on wealth, power, all set aside. Sometimes he would deliberately do things to help promote that. So like when Venerable Upali, the barber, and all the Sakyan princes ordained, had Upali go first, so he always remained the senior, senior bhikkhu, even though in the world he was just a humble barber. And Jen Chao was a bit like that, encouraged people to set aside who they were before, their knowledge, their background, and give up to the Dhamma Vinaya. And the monastery is very much a place of giving up to Buddha Dhamma Sangha and Dhamma Vinaya. And the flavor of practice was that. So it develops a certain energy through the perceptions in people's minds and just the activities of that place develop a certain energy, a certain atmosphere, which one tends to notice. Even today you go in to the monastery and you, you sense that atmosphere, place of practice, place of respect. Brings up the quality of, we say, samma karawa. Karawa means reverence, to have a right reverence, or to revere that which is appropriate to have reverence for. It sets you in as a practitioner, it sets you in the best frame of mind for learning the Dhamma. It gives you the right attitude. If you have respect for Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, for the Dhamma, for the Vinaya, then it means you're willing to learn, willing, willing to set aside previously held views and opinions, preferences, attachments. This is the kind of attitude encouraged to, us to cultivate when we begin the practice. And there's always something higher to give up to, to respect, to revere. Whether it's the Buddha, the Tathagata himself, or the Dhamma, or the Sangha. There's always a monk more senior to ourselves. You know that all the time. Sometimes you play musical kutis at Wat Bapong. You have a, you're given a kuti 
And a week later, another monk turns up, and you have to give up your kuti. Sometimes you have to share, sometimes you literally have to move out to maybe to a slightly smaller or worse off kuti with more termites or more mold in the corners, whatever. So it was like that. Constantly being reminded, constantly removing your sitting cloth, you put it down for the meal and then you find another monk has arrived who's more senior. So you move down a place or maybe a few places. So in your perception you get used to not being too attached to sense of status, material things that might back that up, like having a kuti or place, or certain role in the sangha. And sometimes you're doing a work project and you're the senior monk, so you're expected to give more in leadership and instructions. Give instructions and along comes another more senior monk, contradicts what you said. But out of training you just drop it straight away. Because the last thing you'd see would be monks arguing, say about the chores or in different situations. Ajahn Chah was very skillful at developing that sense of community and how a community can work in practical terms, live together in a way that you, know, you don't have to think too much or expend too much extra energy trying to work everything out. A lot of things can be sorted out because of the respect for Dhamma Vinaya. Monks who are keen to meditate often appreciated this. It makes it very smooth for developing your inner practice of meditation. You don't have to discuss everything, have meetings and negotiate everything because there's already ways of doing things and you're already in the right frame of mind for learning and for setting aside your own ego and personality. Again, the sense of the Brahma Vihara is very tangible, very obvious. Practicing at Wadrapong in the old days and still today, you go there, a sense of harmony, sense of mutual respect, mutual forgiveness, very strong. Learning to let go when there are differences of opinion. The phrase in Thai that you hear often is Mai Pan Rai, never mind. Or Mai Mi Pan Ha, no problem. Often monks learnt to just laugh off when they had a difference of opinion over something. As they know, if you hold on to a angry thought or ill will towards another monk, well, it just festers in your mind. It's going against the whole principle of the Buddha's teaching against what Ajahn Chah taught and if you're intent on purifying your mind and finding true peace from the defilements then there's no room to harbour ill will or a grudge. So you learn to 
shake things off, let go, sometimes just laugh things off, sometimes just accept somebody else's opinion, especially if they're more senior. Obviously we're not all perfect, so sometimes people would give in to their anger. But generally the practice was one of forgiveness. In the worst scenario, you'd go and ask forgiveness from another monk who had felt somehow slighted or wronged in some way. Because bhikkhus who are intent on purifying their mind from kilesa, they do this. They practice forgiveness. They practice letting go. And Jen Chao used to say, if you're still holding on to grudges in the monastery, then you haven't even begun practicing. If you're intent on developing the one-pointedness of samadhi, and then contemplating to free your mind from greed, anger and delusion, then you have no choice but to let go of grudges as soon as possible. Not let them form, not hold on to them. When you live in a community, that's, that is often the practice. Learning to be able to sit down to meditate without having a second thought about the other bhikkhus around you with, ang with anger or ill will. If you read the suttas, this is the flavour of how the Buddha taught, or the Vinaya classes we have. A lot of it's about learning to let go of the tendency to towards competition or conflict with others. And this is why a monastery is a place of peace, respect. It's like a sanctuary. We don't harm the animals, we don't harm each other. Quite distinct from much of the world, which we know is full of conflict. When you've lived in the monastery for a while, then the idea of holding grudges, resentment, starts to become, sometimes even seems a bit ridiculous, because it's so obviously suffering. It's clearly not what the Buddha or Ajahn Chah was encouraging, and it's clearly a burden on the mind. And it's very sad, pitiful, when people have grudges resentment often conditioned by their environment or their cultural background, their race, their religion and so on. When you look out into the world, it's very sad sometimes when people are just attached to their group and they don't really know why they have a grudge against another group. They just inherited it from their cultural conditioning, their parents and so on. When you get two different ethnic groups or religious groups, often it's so automatic, you know, one group doesn't like the other, despises the other. Often it can become violent. It's very sad. Because it, as soon as you start practicing the Dhamma of the Buddha, it becomes apparent how narrow-minded and how limited the perceptions are because they're caught up into those views.
I remember thinking about this once when I was a kid, a couple of streets from the house I was brought up in, born in and brought up in. There was um, an army captain at his house. One time when he was off duty, the um, IRA from Northern Ireland planted a bomb under his car and blew him up. Normally, where I live was pretty peaceful, but it made you think people are willing to go to that extreme, seek out somebody who represents, say, represents another government, another culture, to kill them. Very sad. All over the world we can see that. This is exactly what the Buddha was pointing to, the suffering that comes when we don't investigate grudges, anger, revenge, and so on. But the bhikkhu life is very much, very skillful means for dealing with that. Gives us skillful tools in reflections on Brahmaviharas, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. Even gives us rituals which help in the asking forgiveness showing respect to each other, even just the way we talk to each other. And we have Pali names as bhikkhus, we often we call venerable, entirely we call Tan or Kruba or Ajahn, so either a venerable or an Ajahn. This is all to help bring up mindfulness and bring up sense of respect between Sangha members. result of that is that at least on the outside we can live with harmony allows us to develop our practice on the inside the samatha and the vipassana meditation a lot of our samatha practice in the beginning is based around brahma viharas a lot of metta meditation a lot of letting go letting go of our habit of negativity that we brought into the monastery from lay life, the complaining mind, the grudge-bearing mind, the ill-will, and so on. We use a lot of samatha to deal with that. It's anapanasati, metta, karuna, mudita, or upeka. A lot of reflection on just the, the way things are. Developing upeka when you're if you are caught into ill will against another member of the community, then you reflect that it's just the way they are. And it's their job to change their habits and behavior, just as it's our job to, to change ours. And Jen Chao always used to say, if you're living in community, then watch other people just 10% of the time and watch yourself 90% of the time. The way of the world is to do the opposite. We're always looking out at other people, listening, looking through our senses, even more so these days with the amount of mass communication and travel. The mind is constantly going out to absorb information and 
mental objects from all over the place. As we come into the monastery, we're learning to change that habit. You, know, you keep one eye open, but most of the time you're watching yourself, because that's where the place of practice is. Your thoughts, your intentions, your speech, your actions. That's the only way we can really change things. A lot of our samatha practice is directed to this, learning to calm down, learning to restrain some of the more exuberant behavior we have, whether it's through greed or anger. Sense restraint, just basic mindfulness practice, turning the attention back inwards again. Our habit obviously is to keep going out, so we keep thinking about others, those we like, those we don't like, forming opinions and so on. But a lot of basic samatha practice is just cutting off that tendency. You note what you, you've done, the opinion you form, the preference you have, but then you let go, return to your meditation object over and over again. Little by little the mind feels more complete, more full inside through the practice of samatha. Doesn't need a lot, doesn't need to be so dependent on other people. See, the way of the world is you're always trying to get other people to around you who can reinforce your sense of self, self-worth by you know, having friends who will praise you or family who will praise you and make you feel good trying to get away from the people who criticize you and make you feel bad. It's very tiring living like that. It's the way of the bhikkhu, is one developing samatha vipassana, and develop this sense of inner contentment, fullness and peace through your meditation. It doesn't matter so much what others say. We can reflect, if we are criticized, we can reflect whether it's useful and true but it doesn't put us into a head spin or make us into some kind of drama queen. We have to react with a lot of emotion because we've been developing our own inner peace. And then it doesn't matter so much what people say. We're not looking for praise so much. We're not reacting so much to criticism. We have our own inner foundation of practice to rely on own inner refuge. This also gives us the chance to contemplate, develop vipassana, and really analyze. I mean, some people like to do this anyway, even before the samatha is developed strongly, we can practice vipassana if our inclination is that way. Contemplate. All our feelings, opinions about other people. You bring them up for contemplation, challenge them. If you love somebody, what is it you love about that person? Which of the five candors, which part is it that you love? If you hate somebody, you're angry with someone, which part is it that you hate? Is it the, the form? Which part of the form? If you hate someone, then you're hating their hair of the head or the hair of their body. 
or their skin, their nails, their teeth. Which actual bit of it are you hating? Similarly, if you love someone, or if you hate someone, is it the feelings you're hating? The retina of that person, their pleasant feelings, their unpleasant feelings. Which bit do you hate or love? Or the perceptions of that person, or their thoughts, or the consciousness. If you hate somebody, are you hating the eyes and the eye consciousness, the ears and the ear consciousness of that person? Which bit is it that you love or hate? Sometimes this is enough for the mind to really drop previously held attachments, likes, dislikes, loves and hates. Ajahn Chah was encouraging us to practice in this way, to learn to develop that attitude of respect for the Dhamma, the Vinaya, for the practice, to learn to love the practice, seeing it as more valuable than anything else. Gives you some principles, some guidelines to live your life. Learning how to interact with other people skillfully and then how to manage your own life, your own affairs skillfully internally. He would say after practicing for many years, training monks and teaching lay people, and, you know, the mind becomes wiser. He said he got the most wisdom from training the bhikkhus and teaching the lay people after he established Wapapong. He said, just need to see somebody walking across the compound and already could tell how peaceful or not peaceful they were. Just looking around, you notice things. You notice how people walk, what they say, what they do. You get to notice. Obviously, from his great skill in meditation, he might know deep on a deeper level as well. But just superficially, when the more you practice, then the more you see how kilesas display themselves in the way people, the way they make decisions, the way they go about things. It's not to mean we spend all our time judging or analyzing other people, but it's just a natural result of practicing. We get to know ourselves and then when we know ourselves thoroughly then other people also become, we become aware of them, understand them better. He always used to say if you practice like this, learn to calm your mind and contemplate the Dhamma, then all the aversion or ill will you might have for others just turns into compassion. In the mind, you, you understand the mind as something much bigger than each mood, each mental state. You, the more you practice and contemplate, then the more you see, well, a, a mental state of anger or ill will is just something, a condition that arises, passes away. 
it's not self, it's not a person, as its causes, but it's a condition that just arises, passes away. It's an aramana, a mental state, mental object. You get to see that more and more. So the mind goes to a higher place, a better place. Even if the karmic conditioning for greed, anger and delusion to arise in the world in the mind is not over yet. But one develops the right attitude and how to contemplate them, can look back. first day I spent at Wapapongs, we ended up at Ajahn Chah's Kuti for a couple of hours with partly just waiting, partly talking to the monks. Then it was time to leave, had to walk all the way back, another couple of hours walk. Sometimes teaches us when we can't get in a car, we have to walk, teaches you to be patient put up with conditions. It's hot, dusty, you're tired, hungry maybe, thirsty maybe. Again, this is how Ajahn Chah taught. You just learn to contemplate whatever's coming up. Often you don't have to look for any special experience or special situation because your mind will be throwing up its calaces and craving an attachment anyway, whatever the situation, something will be coming up. We're learning to develop this ability to calm the mind, to bring up that stillness and peace inside, then you can contemplate your experience, not just always reacting and creating a story out of it. For a wise person, the monastic life, monastic training is ideal. It's developed by the Buddha for people to practice. And we're fortunate these days. <coughs> There's plenty of support so we can live as monastics. We get food. We get the requisites we need. Medical support when we're sick and so on. We're not struggling in that sense. All that's left is our mind. If we can appreciate the opportunity, then that only adds to the sense of urgency to keep practicing while we have this chance. If you look at the big picture, you just can't be sure. Even in one lifetime, whether you still have the opportunity in 10 years' time from now, let alone other lifetimes, Who's to know what the future holds? So while we have such an opportunity, best to take it. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. <coughs>